Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. For episode 88, we celebrate the approach of Valentine's Day with a conversation to look deeply into the heart of the older athlete. I think about my heart a lot. I am constantly monitoring my resting heart rate, my training heart rate, my HRV, how my heart feels when I'm going all out. And I think hard about how to make my heart work better today and tomorrow and a long time into the future. I thought it was time to talk to the one and only Benjamin Levine, MD a practicing cardiologist and researcher with an amazing track record in sports cardiology and cardiovascular physiology and exercise. Dr. Levine is also the founder and director of the Institute for Exercise and Environmental Medicine at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital, Dallas. Dr. Levine is the real deal, and this short conversation is so chock full of useful information you will want to listen twice. I have already listened to it three times. All right, let's talk to Dr. Benjamin Levine. Dr. Benjamin Levine, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate the opportunity, and I'm pleased to speak to your audience. Well, you are have impressive credentials, sir, and I appreciate you taking some time for us. The heart is the center of a lot, uh, maybe the center of our life, as well as I can tell you by um, when I look at my uh, heart rate when I'm riding my bike, it's uh, the center of my capabilities to ride my bike. And so you are, uh, among other things, a cardiologist. Is that right? That's correct. I'm a cardiologist. Um, I'm a, both a clinical cardiologist and a cardiovascular physiologist, meaning I much of my research is focused on the limits to human performance and the adaptive capacity of the circulation to things like exercise training, aging, high altitude, space flight, things like that. I've heard you talk about all of those things, and it's sort of amazing to learn how related all of those things are. They are indeed. Yes. Who would have thought that aging and space travel have a lot in common? They do. In fact, NASA uses, uh, considers spaceflight to be a bit of an analog to aging. Many of the the external manifestations of aging are present in even short duration spaceflight. You, uh, your physical conditioning deteriorates, the heart atrophies and stiffens, um, the bones demineralize and become weaker. With advanced radiation exposure, there may be the development of cancer. So, so spaceflight physiology is an interesting analog for the aging process. Very interesting. Okay, great. Well, so in the time that we have, I want to talk about three things at a level that is useful to the audience, but of course, that we can fit into the time that we have. And one is the, from a cardiologist's point of view, what is the benefit of endurance exercise? How does the heart adapt to that that sure. is useful to the athlete, but also right. helpful to the human being for being a healthy person? That's a great place to start, Joe. So okay, the heart is a remarkably adaptive and plastic organ. Okay. It responds to the load that's placed on it. The heart beats naturally. It, if I take it out of your chest and put it in somebody else, it'll continue to beat. That's called the intrinsic heart rate. And then there are nerves that come from the brain um, and that receive signals from your muscles and your lungs and other parts of the body that precisely regulate how much blood the heart needs to pump to various organs in order to meet the metabolic demands. And for an athlete, most of that is the skeletal muscle. Mm. Um, so for a runner, for example, 
or a cyclist will be the legs for a cyclist. For um, a rower, it might be the legs in the back and the upper body. So those muscles need blood. They need to have oxygen and they need to have fuel. Mm -hmm. And they demand that from the heart. So the more exercise you do, the more blood you have to pump. And that happens in two different ways. The first is the heart has to relax and fill. So when I'm standing still, for example, before a run, my heart has a certain amount of blood that it pumps per bead. When I start exercising, the muscles push the blood back to the heart and the heart expands. It may double its size. So if I pump, let's say, 100 milliliters standing quietly and during exercise, I may pump 200 milliliters. And so that plasticity, the ability of the heart to expand and fill with more blood is probably the single most important characteristic of a competitive athlete. So if you think about something called the cardiac output, Mm -hmm. that's the amount of blood that's pumped per minute, it's a function of how much blood the heart pumps per beat and how many beats per minute. Mm -hmm. Multiply those two together, you get the cardiac output. So athletes if anything, have lower heart rates than non-athletes. Sure. So the reason they get more blood is because they pump more blood per beat. Mm-hmm. So that that ability of the heart to relax and to expand, to be compliant, is the single most important distinguishing feature of that elite athlete. So it seems to me that there must be something variable in the amount that the heart can relax and contract from an athlete versus a non-athlete. Because I've heard that the amount of blood that the body is pumping around is like four liters a minute at rest, but it goes up like tenfold during exercise. Well, my heart rate is not doing that. My heart rate's not going up tenfold. Uh, That's exactly right. So the reason that the amount of blood that's pumped goes up so much is because the the stroke volume, the amount of blood pump per beat, is what goes up so much. So so one way to think about the ability of the heart to stretch and to accommodate all this blood is think about a rubber band. Let's say Mm -hmm. you get a nice brand new rubber band, take it out of the package, right? Mm -hmm. And you stretch it and it snaps back, right? Yeah. And um, as you age, let's say you take that rubber band and you stick it in a desk drawer, Mm -hmm. okay? Let it sit there for 20 years, all right? And then you open the drawer, take it out, and now you try to stretch it and it's not really so stretchy anymore, (laughs) is it? I've done this, yes. Yeah, and that's one of the things that happens as we age and maybe as we decondition. The heart becomes less plastic. Now, I'll tell you a little, you know, the the heart is remarkably adaptive. So as you train, that constant stimulus of the heart to pump more blood causes the heart to get bigger. That's called exercise-induced cardiac remodeling. And the more the endurance, more you train from an endurance perspective, the more the volume of the heart gets bigger. If you add in strength training, um, then the heart will thicken. And that's the difference between what we call in cardiology eccentric versus concentric hypertrophy. 
And the same thing happens, by the way, if you have some kinds of heart disease. If I, if one of your heart valves is leaking, the heart will get bigger and adapt. If you fix that leak, the heart will get smaller again. Oh, interesting. If a woman is pregnant, the heart gets bigger because it has to pump blood to more the, to now to the uterus and the baby. And when you deliver the baby, the heart gets smaller again. If I exercise train someone, the heart muscle mass goes up dramatically. If I put them to bed, the heart atrophies and shrinks. So that's that adaptive process. So you had mentioned that the heart is stretching mm. in order to accommodate pumping more blood per beat. So is the size of the heart getting larger to accommodate more stretching? Because I guess if the heart could just stretch more, yeah. it wouldn't have to get any bigger. That, that's, a, that's a good point. And I will tell you that one of the things that limits the amount that the heart can stretch is something called the pericardium. The pericardium is a stiff sac that surrounds the heart and constrains the two sides of the heart. It, uh -huh. it helps the right and the left ventricle work together. And it turns out that if you cut the pericardium and take it off the heart, like we can, we can do that with surgery, now, all of a sudden, the heart can get even bigger. And uh, uh -huh. Jerry Mitchell and my my uh, good friend, uh, the late Jim Stray Gunderson, did that study many years ago where they cut the pericardium off a do off dogs, and they showed that they made them, uh, the hearts got bigger and they could utilize more oxygen. Now, we haven't had a lot of athletes come and ask me to strip the pericardium. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It's a big procedure, but it tells us that um, there are many different factors that limit how big the heart can get. And, you know, it's also true that um, if you start training in older age, yeah. it's very difficult to acquire the same size heart as a an athlete who started when they were younger. Uh -huh. And I don't know if that's because you have to train while you're growing in order to truly maximize the size of the heart. Or whether you need to, it takes a long time to stretch the pericardium in order to get the maximal filling of the heart. Interesting. Yeah, that heart sheath, I guess, maybe is is uh, not a naturally stretchy material. It's not. It's very stiff. That's exactly right. And so we're talking about the the heart muscle and the heart structure or morphology. Of course, there are other things that adapt with endurance training as well. One of the most important is that as you continue to flow blood through the coronary arteries, the heart arteries, their ability to relax and dilate and get more blood to the heart gets better. So that's another really important uh, uh, adaptation of endurance training that is good for the heart, that's better as you get older. And of course, it's not just the heart that needs to be stretchy, it's your blood vessels. So the aorta is the big blood vessel yeah. into which the heart pumps its blood that expands like that stretchy rubber band when the heart pumps and then it gives the blood back to the muscles in between the heartbeats. And regular exercise training over a lifetime preserves the youthful compliance, the stretchability of both the heart and the blood vessels, as well as um, improves and optimizes the ability to direct that blood where it needs to go, in particular to the skeletal muscle and to the cardiac muscle. Okay, so 
a question related to that, and then I, I want to leap into the impact of aging and how exercise can help reduce the effect of aging. Mm -hmm. You talked about how there's many effects, adaptations of the cardiovascular system from exercise. And I had heard in the past that they really kind of fall into two broad buckets. So maybe that's not really true, but you know, roughly speaking, there are structural things that take a long time, like having this pericardium get pushed to its limit often enough for long enough. And it says, okay, finally, I will grow a little bit here and a little bit there. And if you stay after it, years go by and your heart can get bigger. The growing of the heart seems like maybe that's a long-term thing. Whereas there are other, this other bucket then would be adaptations that can happen relatively quickly. Maybe like the volume of your blood or something like that could happen relatively quickly. Is that, is there any truth to that? No, I think that you've expressed it well, Joe. There are certainly structural and functional adaptations that occur with exercise training that have different time courses. I will say that the heart, you know, gets big pretty fast. So when we put sedentary people on a training program, even within three months of training, the heart gets more muscular and then it dilates and it, the mass of the heart gets bigger. It takes us about a year to take a sedentary person and make the muscle of the heart the same size as a competitive athlete of the same age. But uh, like we were talking about before, getting the volume and the compliance of the heart to be the same, that may take a lot longer. We've done two-year exercise training programs uh, in middle-aged adults. But what's interesting, and this will get transition, help us transition into the aging perspective. So um, if, you, if you take someone who's in their 70s, who's never trained, and put them on a training program... You can get them fitter, but it's very difficult to change the structure of the heart hmm. um, with a short term, even one or two years of a training program hmm. after the heart has adapted. And what we've shown over time is, um, I mean, let me just, I'll give you a little history here of how we got to this point. So hmm. we started off uh by doing some aging and bed rest studies. And so one of the most famous studies in our field was done here in Dallas in the 1960s. My mentors, Jerry Mitchell and Gunnar Blomquist, Bing Saltine, took five young men, put them to bed for three weeks, mm -hmm. and then trained them for two months. And much of what we know about this plasticity that we've been talking about comes from that study. Now, I was only 10 years old at the time, so I had nothing to do with that original <laughs> study. But in 1996, 30 years later, we found those same five guys and we brought them back to Dallas wow. and we studied them again. And it turns out that not a single person was in worse shape after 30 years of aging than they were after three weeks of bed rest when they were in their 20s. So three wow. weeks of bed rest is worse for the body's ability to do physical work than 30 years of aging. And, and a lot of what we then automatically kind of assume is related to aging or senescence, some of that, perhaps a lot of it, is due to the gradual deconditioning and slowing that happens as we age and the vagaries of life. And so we said, okay, let's take people who are extremely healthy but sedentary, 
and compare them to a group of elite master's athletes. And we, we put catheters in their hearts and catheters in their arteries, and we actually measured the compliance, this stretchability of the heart mm. and blood vessels. And we found that the elite master's athletes had hearts that were as youthfully flexible, even when they were 70, than people who were in their 20s. Oh, that's amazing. So that that's great, but it's not a really good public health measure, right? So we asked ourselves, okay, how much exercise do you need to do over a lifetime to preserve this youthfulness of the circulation? And so we partnered with my colleagues at the Cooper Clinic here in Dallas, and we selected people who over 25 years had come to the Cooper Clinic and told the docs they did the same amount of exercise. And we divided them into four main groups those who were sedentary, that is, who did very relatively little exercise, less than two days a week of training. Those who did casual exercise, two to three days a week of exercise over 25 years. Mm -hmm. Those who were committed exercisers, four to five days a week on a consistent basis throughout their lifetime. And another group of competitive master's athletes, six or seven days a week plus competitions. Mm -hmm. And then we did the same thing. We put catheters in, we measured their compliance, we measured their fitness. And it turns out that two or three days a week over a lifetime did absolutely nothing to the structure of the heart. Oh boy. Four to five days a week got us much of the way, not completely as the master's athletes, but much of the way. So that's sort of the the sweet spot, if you will, the optimal dose of at least four to five times a week of exercise to preserve the youthful structure of the heart. Now, the next question is, could we take those sedentary but healthy individuals and turn them into athletes by training them? Mm. So we trained them for a year, high volume, high intensity. We couldn't change a thing. Uh -oh. So by the time they were 70, it was kind of too late. We mm. could make them fitter, we could get those short-term adaptations, which are clearly good. Okay. Don't, I don't want to diminish or minimize the effect of the importance of regular fitness, even if you're 70, but we couldn't change the structure. Of the heart. Of the heart and blood vessels. So the next question we asked was, okay, when in the aging process does this stiffening occur? So we took people at age 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, 75, and put catheters in and measured their stiffness. And what we found is that it was that transition from youth to middle age when the heart was just starting to do that stiffening process. And then from up until about, you know, um, if we call youth under the age of 35, mm -hmm. 35 to 50 is early middle age, 50 to 65 is late middle age, okay. over age 65 is um, older age or seniors, and then 65 to 80, and then over 80 is the extremely old. That's the general NIH type categories. Okay. And so we found that it was in that 50, 55 range that the process really started to get settled. So then we said, okay, what if we took patients in that sweet spot, so in their 50s, Mm -hmm. and use the optimal dose of training using a really well-prescribed training technique, can we then 
reverse a few decades of sedentary aging. And indeed, we could. So this is, in fact, uh, there, there's a, uh, something called Altmetrics, which is uh, journals publish how popular a particular study is. And we published this study in circulation in 2018, and it's among the top 10 papers in the history of this major American Heart Association journal that has attracted the public attention. Awesome. So there is that dynamic flexibility. So when we put people to bed, we can simulate aging, right? So aging, uh, at least some component of what we think about as aging is deconditioning, and we can prevent that by being active while we age. Well, that's good news. A lot of it anyway. Um, I would say that the worst news would be the, the older person who's on bed rest. I would guess that they're getting not only the effect of the aging, but they're deconditioning very quickly. And then they're going, it's going to be hard for them to recover. Yeah, you know, that, that's a really good point. And my, my friend and colleague, Rich Hewson in Waterloo, Canada, has been studying what happens when you put older people to bed rest. And indeed, if you put them to bed, they do decondition quite dramatically. But if you exercise them while they're in bed, you can really prevent a lot of that from happening. So I think, you know, we've learned this lesson in medicine many years ago that pure bed rest is not ideal for most patients. Mm -hmm. We want them to get out of bed. We want them to walk around. And when I'm in the intensive care unit, that's continues to be my mantra. Okay, get this patient up. Let's get some movement going. Okay. And for somebody who's not really ill, like in the hospital, but they just have injured their leg or something and they can't run or ride their bike, they could swim, and they, but they should do something. They should try to exactly. do Exactly. Yeah, I think that's important. Let me extend this to another area where some of your audience may know well, and that is in the COVID world. Because there's a lot of talk about long COVID. I'm sure yes. you've heard about that. And there are some estimates of 25 or 30% of people who have COVID have long COVID or symptoms that last more than three months. Right. Well, I, I work with a, a program called ORCA, which is the Outcomes Registry for Cardiovascular Conditions in Athletes. And we uh, had a, a big registry for the NCAA during the COVID era. And we captured and identified every single NCAA athlete who had COVID mm -hmm. and participated in this registry. And we had 3,500 athletes who tested positive for COVID. Wow. How many of them do you think still had symptoms 12 weeks after they finished their COVID? Two. Oh my gosh. Well, so that's certainly not 30%. It's not. And what, so why so different? I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think it's because the NCAA athletes, as soon as they finished their quarantine period, immediately got back into a athletic trainer monitored, supervised return to play program, and they started to be physically active. And so just being active, don't lie around in bed. That was a huge difference in preventing long COVID symptoms in the athletic community. Got it. Well, and certainly it's the right thing to do as long as you can do it for whatever it is. Yep. Okay. So I had heard you say in another talk, but I don't believe you mentioned it here, that the effect that aging has on the heart is twofold. One is that the heart becomes less compliant, but it also 
shrinks, atrophies, I think is the mm -hmm. word that you used. Yeah. And these are effects because of what you had said about the, the lifelong athletes. But I wonder, if, is it also true of the, the, say, the people in their 50s who then start exercising? You would expect that they could put that off, that uh, the less stretchiness over time and the, the shrinking of the heart. Yeah, indeed. That's what we found, that in okay. particularly in middle age, it's not too late. And, you know, many of your audience are master's athletes. And yes. what we found is that the population of master's athletes remarkably tends not to be those individuals who were elite athletes when they were younger. Hmm. Most of our athletes started training when they were in their 30s or sometimes even in their 40s and became hooked, became passionate. Right. Now, some of these individuals started training because they got obese or had hypertension or, you know, had high cholesterol. Yeah. And so, you know, exercise is wonderful for the human body, but it's not a miracle. Yeah, it doesn't make you young again. And it doesn't prevent many of the, the diseases that occur with previously less than ideal lifestyle. So right. some people think that they can conquer aging by exercise, and that unfortunately is not true. I'm often told when I talk about the cardiovascular effects uh, of exercise and aging about the Jim Fix story, right? Yes. So Jim Fix, who wrote the the complete book of running, mm -hmm. um, died when he was 53 while he was out for a run. But what most people don't know about Jim was that before he took up running, he was obese, he was a cigarette smoker, he had uh, very high cholesterol. And his father died at age 43 from a heart attack. Yeah. So Jim probably put off that process by a decade, you know. Yeah. But it is important for all your listeners to know to be pay attention to their bodies. Don't ignore symptoms. Just because they're fit doesn't mean they can't have underlying cardiovascular disease. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a good message to say. And, uh, and I actually remember being a kid reading my dad's copy of that book. And I'll have to tell you, the, the the one thing I took away from that book was that he said, oh, yeah, having a hamburger and a beer after his run was great. And I thought, oh, well, that must not be so bad for you. So he wasn't an expert in a lot of things. Right. Well, you know, I think that when we talk about diet, nutrition and stuff like that, I think those are, that's the long game. Yeah. And the short game, I don't worry about it too much. I if somebody told me, look, after a long run and I feel great, I want to have a hamburger and a beer, I'd say, go for it. If they told me I want to have a hamburger and a beer every night and every meal, I would say that's a bad idea. Yeah, good. Let's see. I wanted to move into another thing here. Okay. I have a slow heart rate for all the reasons we've talked about. I have a big heart. And so it pumps a lot of blood. And so it doesn't have to pump very much when I'm not doing anything. The other thing that is happening, and this is, I think, generally true of people as they get older, is their maximum heart rate is falling. Now, that can't be because my heart doesn't need to beat as fast as it used to. It won't beat as fast as it used to. I can't go as hard as I used to. And so that seems to be related to, as I've read, a dropping in my VO2 max. Is what I'm saying so far based in any reality? Yeah, so you're mixing and matching a few things. So, okay. so your VO2 max is your maximal oxygen uptake. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the best physiologic measure we have of fitness. Yeah. 
And uh, the more oxygen you can utilize, the faster you can go and the more power you can generate. And by something called the Fick equation, the oxygen uptake is a function of two things. It's a function of the ability to deliver blood to the muscles and the ability of the muscles to extract it. So the cardiac output and the arterial venous oxygen difference, delivery and extraction. And so as you age, you're right that that maximal heart rate does tend to slow. Why is that? Uh, I can't be 100% sure, but I will tell you that, again, we talked earlier about taking the heart out of the body and putting it in someone Mm -hmm. else. It will continue to beat naturally, and that's called the intrinsic heart rate. The heart has this, uh, these specialized cells, yeah. which are located in a pacemaker region, that are a little leaky. Mm-hmm. So when they leak current, they reach a threshold and bang, it depolarizes and that causes the heartbeat. Mm. And that will happen with or without nerves that are attached to it. If you want to communicate with the heart, you have to have neural signals. And there are two main types of nerves. There's the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the brake, which slows the heart, Mm -hmm. and the sympathetic nervous system, which is the accelerator, which speeds the Mm -hmm. heart. And for your heart rate to speed up, so when you start exercising, you take your foot off the brake, you have parasympathetic withdrawal, and you step on the accelerator. That's the sympathetic nervous system. So a little bit of a simplistic uh, explanation. Yeah, and we could affect that here right now just by changing our breath. We could breathe really fast and breathe really slow. Yeah, or by standing up, you can do that. So those signals constantly adjust the the cardiac output and the heart rate to deliver the right amount of blood. Now, as you get older, the heart becomes increasingly less sensitive to the accelerator. So you uh. so you don't you don't speed up as much as you might otherwise. And it becomes a little bit more sensitive to the brake and the intrinsic heart rate also slows a little bit. Uh. So each one of those factors will adjust and those are not related to training. So so there are some things this how the heart relaxes dynamically in between beats, not its compliance, but the speed at which it relaxes Mm -hmm. and the electrical components, those are not really altered by training. That's a function of senescence. You can't make that stop, I'm afraid. And so it becomes harder to... Yeah. So as your peak heart rate goes down, your stroke volume can only increase by so much. So your cardiac output is decreases and your VO2 max or your maximal aerobic power also goes down. You can compensate for that a little bit by increasing the extraction in the skeletal muscle, but that's not, that, that ability is not infinite. So that's why even in the most athletic populations, VO2 max does decrease with aging regardless of how fit you stay. Now, the slope of that, the rate at which it goes down, is much less in individuals who remain Uh, physically active. uh. And that's really the key. That's why remaining physically active is so important. So it's not necessarily lifespan that we want to prolong, but health span. Sure, sure. Right? You want to remain active and well, and to do that, you got to stay physically active. Okay. And, And something that I think you meant, or that I took at least from what you were describing, was that... It's related to the compliance, the stretchiness or the bounce back of this rubber band heart 
it doesn't relax as well. It takes longer to fill up again. Right. So it can't beat as fast and pump as much blood as it did before. So you're talking about very complex physiology, Joe, and this is called diastole. That's the period in between the heartbeats. Uh So the heart squeezes, just think about it like squeezing a ball, right? Squeezing a rubber ball or a sponge, you squeeze the air out of it, and then you let go, and it relaxes quickly. Relaxation is important. And then it continues to feel and it stretches. So there's the static component, the flexibility or compliance of the heart that is modifiable with physical activity. And there is the rate at which the heart will relax that is not modifiable by physical activity. And that is that slowing of relaxation and slowing of the heart rate are inevitable consequences of aging. Okay, so related to that then, there's always been this thought in my mind, um, not always, since I've been older, (laughs) Uh, and, and I've worried that when I'm exercising and I'm doing high intensity, I have found that in the past, if I see my maximum heart rate, which and when I say maximum, I mean the, the biggest number that I see mm-hmm. on my monitor, because I, I have no idea what if my heart rate ever got any higher than that. Sure. But when I see that number, if I stay at that number for too long, for too many seconds in a week, that I think I feel it. I think that I, I'll end up with more irregularity in my heartbeats. And so I've developed this sense of, you know, dread of seeing my maximum heart rate when I'm exercising. Now, high (laughs) heart rate, close to my maximum, okay, you know, no problem. But you tell me, is seeing your maximum heart rate a problem? Is it seeing too much a problem? Well, so (laughs) seeing it is of no consequence whatsoever, right? Uh But like any good athlete, you've got to balance intensity duration with recovery. Mm-hmm. And so if every single session was a high intensity interval session and you pushed yourself to exhaustion for every interval, you wouldn't get better, you'd get worse, right? So that's just bad training. So the heart gets tired too and you want it to recover. And your body gets tired. Yeah. You know that many athletes in fact one of the most difficult things for a young athlete to understand is that the recovery is just as important to the adaptation as the stress. So when you do an interval session, you really need to follow it with a recovery session to maximize the benefit of that workout. And no athlete's going to do high-intensity intervals every single workout. You've got to have a balance of intensity, duration over the course of a week. And that gets us to the question of why are you training, right? And I ask this of every single one of my athlete patients. I say, what's your goal? What's your objective? If you tell me, uh, Dr. Levine, my main goal for, for training is to extend my lifespan and to feel well, then I would say, look, you can get that with three to five hours a week, right? You'll get the maximum benefit in terms of life extension and cardiovascular health by doing about three, maybe four or five hours over the course of the week. Okay. And my prescription for life, if you will, yeah. is I think... Based on the work that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, I think that the goal should be to do four or five days a week of some kind of physical activity. 
I recommend at least one day a week be at least an hour or longer and that it be fun. I don't really care what that is. You could go out, you know, dancing with your spouse. You could take a, a long bike ride. You could play some tennis with some friends. Last at least an hour, though, and be fun. I think that everybody should incorporate some degree of high-intensity intervals uh-huh. into their workout. One or two days a week. I love the aerobic interval, the four by four. That's the old Norwegian ski team workout. Four minutes at 95% of your max, followed by three minutes of recovery. Max repeated what? four times. Max heart rate, max capacity. Basically, the you don't even have to look at your heart rate. Go, you go as hard as you can to sustain that for four minutes. Okay. And at the end of those four minutes, you should be ready to stop. You should be glad. <laughs> and you should, and then by the end of the three minutes of active recovery, you should be ready to go again. And that's what an aerobic interval is. Okay. And you should be able to do that. You know, it doesn't have to be that. You even could mix it up. You can do one aerobic interval and one sprint interval doing shorter distance but higher intensity. Uh-huh. And you do at least, I say, at least one, at least one, sometimes two of those, depending on how much you enjoy that a week. Yeah. And then an additional two or three days a week of moderate intensity exercise that lasts 30 minutes or so. And what do I mean by that? I mean, hard enough that you're a little bit short of breath, but you can still carry on a conversation. So I tell people, you can talk, but you can't sing. It's called the talk test. A little sweat on your brow. Familiar with that. And then I, I like to add in at least one or two days of strength training to that regimen. That doesn't have to be pumping iron in the gym. It could be, you know, martial arts. It could be Tai Chi. It could be Pilates. It could be, you know, CrossFit. Anything that uses body weight or uses concentric contractions to increase strength. And that's my prescription for life. So four to five endurance type sessions and a couple of strength training of some sort. Yeah, that's my prescription. Okay. I'm proud to report that I'm not too far off of that. In terms of days a week, I actually go for more hours per session. And I think that's fine. So so that gets us to the next question, Joe, and that is but that's if your goal of training is cardiovascular health. Yeah. Now, if you tell me, look, Dr. Levine, I want to compete in a, a full Ironman, well, it's not going to cut it, right? <laughs> yeah. you, right? Then your training is going to have to be much greater. Or if you tell me, look, I don't want to just participate. I want to win. Right. And if you want to win, then you've got to do different kinds of training. You've got to train harder. You've got to train smarter. You need to have cycles of training where you have a build-up phase um, and then a taper before a competition. And that has to be, you have to think about your nutrition and your, the environment and your uh, social support structure. Being a competitive athlete successfully requires a different kind of training. And so competitive training versus health training are different. And then there's something in the middle. There are people who say, look, I just love the joy of how it feels when I work out. I love to be part of this community of being a master's athlete. I love to get out there with my guys and go for a long bike ride. And, you know, I'll push myself with them. You know, but I don't really care about winning, but I love to be part of the participation. That gives me joy. 
And that require might require a different dose of exercise. Sure. But you had said before, fun needs to be a part of it. And it I does. agree because if it's not fun, my God, I'm not going to do it. Okay. We're running out of time here, but I, I wanted to hit two things that okay. we jumped away from. Um, so let me jump back in and say, of course, I need to rest in between my workouts. And it's easy for me to tell when my legs need a rest. My, my legs feel stiff or they, or they hurt, mm -hmm. but I can't. How do I tell when my heart needs a rest? Is it I can't get my heart rate up when I'm exercising? Or is it my heart rate is high when I wake up in the morning? Or is it an HRV thing? What would you say? Yeah. So I, I don't think there's one simple measure that will tell you that your quote unquote heart needs a rest. Remember, your heart is beating every single day, every single second. It's constantly beating. It doesn't need a rest per se. So um, heart rate variability is useless. Mm -hmm. um, it's very variable. It's completely dependent on body position and respiration. I don't find that useful or helpful. Okay. Um, we've done, I published 50 papers in the literature about cardiovascular variability, and we've pretty much given up using <laughs> it as a research tool because it's just not reliable enough. You know, when we were, we did a lot of work for the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, and develop when we did the live high, train low model of altitude oh, training. Yeah. And we used to use early morning heart rate as an mm -hmm. indicator of overall training health. You know, and a, that's, we used to do that by you put your heart rate monitor on, wake up, put your heart rate monitor on, go back to sleep for 10 or 15 minutes, and that nadir, that's your resting heart rate. Okay. And so that's a good way of doing that. If that starts to rise, then perhaps you're a little bit overtrained and maybe need to back off a little bit more. But I, I don't think there's something unique to the heart needing rest okay. as opposed to the overall body needing rest and implementing an intelligent, rational combination of different kinds of workouts over the course of a microcycle, mesocycle, and macrocycle. That's great information. Thank you. The last question was about arrhythmias. And mm. I had heard from some notable masters who have arrhythmias and I had, you know, ablations to try to deal with it. And yeah. a scuttlebutt is, first of all, we're not sure exactly why, but we think that it's scarring on the heart that's interfering with why. the electrical I can, signal. I can tell you why. No, tell no, us. we know why it is. Yeah. So, so. Um, it's hard to do this without being able to draw a picture, but um, the heart has four chambers. You're talking about something called atrial fibrillation. Yes. That's the bane of the master's athlete, and there's no way around it. The master's athlete has about a five-fold increase risk of atrial fibrillation uh, compared to the non-athlete. Okay. No way around that, and I'll tell you why that's going to, in a minute, why that is. So... The pacemaker is in the upper right-hand corner of the right atrium. In between the atria, which is the collecting chambers, and the ventricles, which are the pumping chambers, there are valves. There's the tricuspid valve on the right side, the mitral valve on the left side. And when the heart beats, when the ventricles squeeze, they snap those atrioventricular valves closed, the mitral and tricuspid valve. So the blood only goes in one direction. It doesn't go backwards, right? right? But the blood is continuing to flow into the collecting chambers, mm -hmm. even though that valve is smacked shut. In fact, it serves a bit like a dam. So the blood get in the atria gets dammed up behind 
the valves, mm -hmm. and the atria, which are very thin-walled and very compliant, start to stretch. Now, in us sitting quietly, let's say only about 10% of the cardiac cycle, the contraction and relaxation, is involved, those valves are closed only 10% of the time. Yeah. Now, I start increasing your heart rate. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not changing how the valve's being closed, how much time it takes to contract, but I'm markedly shortening the period in between the beats. That's what makes the heart rate go up. Yeah. So now, the valves are closed a greater amount of time, and the heart blood is increasing I'm increasing your cardiac output. So now the blood's flowing into those collecting chambers even faster. Yeah. And it really stretches the atria. And the atria continue to grow as you train. And I'll give you a good example of this. In that study that I told you about, um, in our two-year training study mm -hmm. in the 50-year-olds, uh, mm -hmm. we, we did a, they were originally sedentary, we took nine months to gradually increase their frequency, intensity, duration to get a max optimal training program, including intervals. And then we held the training dose constant for another year, mm -hmm. right? So we didn't increase the intensity or duration. VO2 max increased over those first nine months mm -hmm. and didn't change further left the ventricular, the, the pumping chambers, increased, adapted, grew, got bigger over those first uh, year, nine mm -hmm. months, and then didn't change anymore. Mm -hmm. The atria continued to enlarge throughout the two years of the program. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not changing your dose, if you're exercising regularly, those atria will stretch. And some people's atria stretch more than others, and this can lead to uh, an arrhythmia called atrial fibrillation. So it doesn't sound to me like there's an avoiding it without avoiding all the nope. benefits of cardiovascular exercise. Nope, I'm afraid there's not. Well, bummer news. Sorry. Sorry, okay. guys. All right, Dr. Levine, this has been at least as good as I had hoped. Thank you, sir. Is there someplace online that you would direct people to find out more information about the work that you've done or, or where sure. they can find more information? Yeah, I run the largest center for the study of human physiology in the United States. It's called the Institute for Exercise and Environmental Medicine. That sounds good. Yeah, it's at www.texashealth.org slash I-E-E-M. Great. I'll get that link in the show notes. So anybody who didn't take notes, will just be able to find it there. Dr. Levine, thank you very much for your time. All right, Joe. Thanks. Okay. Take care now. Have yep. a good night. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion with Dr. Benjamin Levine. You can find more information about Dr. Levine in the show notes. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. That'd be a big help. Thanks again.